I found a post last month on the BitMEX blog about getting paid in Bitcoin in Singapore. And I think it's kind of interesting because there's this narrative or dream of Bitcoin nomads who are not tied to any one place. And because their money is naturally international, they can kind of move around and live anywhere, earn anywhere, etc. This post is a description of how you actually do it. And there are basically three options. Your first is long Bitcoin, short Singaporean dollar. That means you are paying for your daily living with credit. And if the price of Bitcoin rises in that month, the assumption is here is that you have a credit card, then you are making money that month because you get to hodl your Bitcoin, sell some at a higher price to pay off your credit. Great move during bull markets, maybe. Depends on your tax treatment. Sure. Assuming, yeah, assuming you don't have to pay a capital gains on that credit card payment revenue. <laughs> but I feel like that's how a lot of us are living life right now because we have no choice. Maybe that's just me. Your other option is long Bitcoin neutral Singaporean dollar. This is where you are holding Bitcoin, but instead of buying things on credit, you're doing some sort of auto convert feature to sell Bitcoin into Singaporean dollars when you spend it. So it depends on the fees and the services available to do that for you because there's going to be some centralization to to manage that conversion on the fiat side. And the reason why they're getting paid in Bitcoin first, then selling to pay fiat expenses, is because in theory they're getting paid by some employer that's outside of their local country. So they can't get paid in the local fiat because obviously you might as well just get paid in the local fiat, pay your expenses, and then take the what's remaining and buy Bitcoin. And then you don't have the cap gains, but you still get to stack Bitcoin. So this whole model is predicated on you being paid in Bitcoin. And maybe that's just the industry you're in, or that was you negotiated that or yeah. something. Well, I could see it making sense if you truly want to try to move around the world, but you wanted one consistent currency to be paid in. The third option is neutral Bitcoin, long local currency. You hold Bitcoin, you budget your fiat expenses for the month, and then you either sell Bitcoin spot at the beginning of the month to cover your expenses, or you hedge your monthly budget using a derivative product, which is conveniently offered by BitMEX. So there's centralized services in all of these options, except the long Bitcoin short local currency option. But it's nice to see someone spell it out. And it's not simple. Not exactly yet. It'd be a lot simpler if they could just spend the sats directly. That circular economy might take some time to build. And I think you have to have a lot of pain and bad policy and more KYC and more sharp edges in traditional payment methods before a large number of people will be willing to change. I agree. I just think this is an area where Bitcoiners have failed. We're all in on this internet money, but yet we for some reason can't build local circular economies over the internet. Why can't, if I want services or goods, why isn't there just some sort of marketplace online for Bitcoin merchants and Bitcoin buyers? Sort of like there's RoboSats, but I want to be able to buy services. I, I would love to be able to hire an electrician with SATs. To me, that's actually a decent use of my SATs is if somebody's coming in and we're building something in my home that improves my home, that's an investment in my domicile. That's something I might actually spend SATs on. But we just haven't really, we haven't, we haven't gotten organized yet. Well, there was the Silk Road. Yeah, I mean, I think there have been a bunch of attempts at building marketplaces. I've never heard of one that was particularly successful. I think that there's work in Noster on something around this, but it's pretty complicated. I mean, Craigslist is hard to beat. Remember there was that Bitcoin Craigslist type? 
type oh, yeah. service Sats we talked for about. crap or whatever? Yeah. yeah, Sats for crap. I bought like a Nintendo something or other off that. I tried to sell something on there and I ended up having my like deposit amount stuck and I had to contact them to get it off. Yeah, well, nobody wants a bag of hair. Hey, it's your hair. <laughs> This is the Bitcoin Dad Pod, recorded on December 15th, 2023. I'm your Bitcoin Dad, and I'm here, as always, remotely with... With me, it's Chris. Hey, everybody, welcome back. On today's show, we're going to discuss Senator Warren of the United States Senate's latest incendiary remarks and call for a bill that would crack down of crypto's use in money laundering, etc. It's a very misleading bill, unlikely to pass, but it shifts the narrative in a bad direction. The ETF news is in the background, and this also might be part of a last gasp to try to block what is now being seen as an inevitable Bitcoin ETF boom in the coming year. In economics, we have an article from Arthur Hayes about the US-China relationship, how whatever the long-term geopolitical conflicts are in the pipe, short-term, the US and China need each other bad right now for the next election cycle. What does this mean for Bitcoin? TLDR, just buy it. There's some news from FAVSB, an acronym I've never fully understood. It turns out that companies in the US holding Bitcoin may be able to value it at fair market value on their balance sheets instead of the previous standard, which meant that if they bought Bitcoin, it could only ever lose value from an accounting perspective. This is interesting because it means there are a lot more balance sheets that can hold Bitcoin in the coming bull market. There is also news that French bank Societe Generale has released a new euro-backed stablecoin. The marketing is that this will be useful in DeFi protocols and things like that. It's released on Ethereum. Kind of interesting because the EU has been very anti-financial privacy, very anti-crypto and digital payments to a certain extent, though they have more legislation like MICA that defines how companies can engage in that space. I think the real story here is that the ECB has always been very concerned about the lack of demand for euro-backed stablecoins, so they were willing to greenlight this project. What does that mean for international money and the euro as an international currency? In privacy, we have some interesting develops around eCash wallet recovery. Kind of neat. It's a custodial solution for privacy and scaling. So I think that legally, it's very challenging. But in terms of technology, very interesting. So we can discuss that. And probably some of the worst privacy news we've ever reported. The U.S., has reauthorized the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act, and they have broadened the definition of entities that are required to turn over data directly to U.S. intelligence services so broadly that even your home router could define you as an entity that needs to coordinate with U.S. intelligence. It's pretty big news, and it demonstrates that privacy of all forms is under constant attack, and it is just not a mainstream priority to protect privacy, even though the lack of privacy degrades all public institutions and democratic engagement. Also, Ledger Wallet is officially a surveillance application. There's been some analysis about how the software 
sends all of your transaction data, balances, and unique identifiers to external services. And the icing on the cake is that Ledger has also had their infrastructure compromised, and now you just can't rely on it at all. So that threat last episode about us potentially promoting Ledger as leverage to get a cold card sponsorship, well, we just have to throw that away. Also, one bit of housekeeping. If you listen to the Waxwing interview and you clicked on the join market link in the interview notes, that was a scam. Your Bitcoin dad really messed up there. I should have just gone directly to the join market GitLab and link to that. But there is a front end website purporting to be join market and it is a total scam. So I really hope no one got hurt by that. Make sure that you verify binaries and do your due diligence before installing any software, but especially Bitcoin wallet software. And then in Bitcoin education, we have a Bitcoin Optech that mentions another Stratum V2 mining pool launch, which is very prescient because the latest pool launch ocean pool has been an absolute mess and completely dramatic. And then we have some boosts and that's our show. Wow. Well, at least there's nothing going on this week. Let's talk about the big bad bear right now. We have one actor and individual that managed to really simmer down the the bull run, and that is Senator Warren, who announced this week that she has expanded her coalition of support around a bill that is, quote, cracking down on crypto. It is S2669, the Digital Assets Anti-Money Laundering Act of 2023. And uh, dad, if you wouldn't mind, I thought the timeline of this was interesting. So the ETF starts heating up and uh, we quickly see the Wall Street Journal after October 7th roll out a very bogus and now very debunked article that Hamas was being funded in millions with crypto. Liz rolled out a bill and a campaign immediately before the facts were verified. That was the Digital Asset Anti-Money Laundering Act. Shortly after that, it became pretty widely known that the Wall Street Street Journal article was incorrect. Doesn't matter. They had another Senate hearing where Jamie and Liz and friends sat down and really went hard on crypto. Jamie said if he ran the government, he would, quote, shut it down. That week following that Senate hearing, Liz goes on a media tour hearing, goes on CNBC and anywhere that'll take her, talking about how expensive Bitcoin is to the climate and how it it participates in climate injustice. And then this Sunday night, less than 24 hours before we had an announcement about the expanded coalition, Bitcoin had a dramatic and immediate 5% drop. Boom. Somebody sold 1.2 billion-ish Bitcoin Sunday night before the announcement. Somebody had insider knowledge. That drop came after eight straight weeks of weekly gains with no headline leading it. And then we get the then we get the bomb on Monday morning of this week that Liz has expanded her coalition to 19 supporters. Uh, it is uh, 19, of course, co-sponsors is what the term is. It's 16 Democrats, two Republicans. And there are 100 senators, correct? So that's almost 20% of the Senate? Yeah, that's basically it. And, you know, you, you never know. She's added she's added a couple of more since the announcement. So she may add a few more. Um, like every good politician, she is not wasting a tragedy and she is leveraging the situation post-October 7th to um, scare people into supporting this bill and, you know, ramming that meme that crypto is being used by terrorists. So credit to you for doing the research. The issue, I think, with Elizabeth Warren is that she's effectively never passed a bill and her strategy does not appear to be passing legislation. It's mostly narrative shaping and pushing the conversation in a certain direction so that someone has to propose a more reasonable bill 
but it shifts towards her perspective because it has to respond to the absolute insanity of what she's proposing. So what's the problem with her bill? The issue is that this is being marketed as a common sense bill to make crypto firms abide by the same standards as regulated financial institutions. Again, this is kind of schizophrenic because crypto is not money, according to these bill sponsors and Elizabeth Warren, but they want to regulate it like money, like money transmission, like banking. So I think that's an interesting fallacy or contradiction. Fine. The problem is, one, the entire framework of financial compliance, KYC, AML, it's completely wrong. And maybe we'll never win that debate. But I posit that if it wasn't necessary for US citizens to give their social security number to so many institutions just to perform small financial transactions, probably those numbers would be more secret today. Whereas we know today that every single US adult essentially has had their social security number leaked. And this is a number that can be used to open loans in your name, open credit cards, open bank accounts. And so as a direct result, I argue, of financial disclosure law and government financial surveillance, citizens of the U.S. operate in a very uncertain, dangerous space and have to maintain constant vigilance for financial crime in the traditional financial system as a direct result of these anti-privacy laws. But if we take a step further and look at the bill, what this bill actually does is it defines node operators and participants in blockchain networks as financial intermediaries. And so with language this vague and broad, it's conceivable that running a Bitcoin node and certainly running an Ethereum validator would be illegal. And you'd have to undergo expensive compliance if that were to be enforceable, which it's not, you would end up in a world where only institutions can run nodes. So you get legacy finance all over again, because you take away the decentralized nature of these open systems, and you turn them into a walled garden, not through the technology, but through the legal treatment of people who operate the technology. And in the US, at least, this is pretty clearly illegal, because what is code? It's letters and numbers. What are letters and numbers? Their writing, their speech, First Amendment, right to free speech in the US. So fundamentally, this is contradictory to American values, to the American Constitution. I'm not a constitutionalist, but it just as a regular, pretty middle of the road, American citizen, a lot of problems here, completely misrepresented as to what this bill is. And again, it's not going to pass, even with more co-sponsors, but it's going to be a stick to beat future, more reasonable treatments of digital asset regulation and pull them in a financial surveillance, centralizing, controlled direction, in my opinion. I completely agree. I think the move here is actually twofold. My premise that I operate from is somewhere through one of the last three election cycles, Liz just gave up and became a complete pawn of the banking industry. And when you hear about these bankers that come into government and government officials that go into banking and that that revolving door, Liz is, from what I read, sort of the one of the key movers in that space, helping that revolving door. And this is her lot in life now. That's probably why she has north of a $67 million net worth, even though she is on a $285,000 a year salary. And she's just become a big player. And what this does, is this suppresses price. I think if I were some of these big banks, and if I were Larry, I really wouldn't like seeing all the plebs front run my big ETF play. There's an element of that. I don't think it's impossible. But additionally, it has this other really kind of vague language in there 
that seems kind of like receiving large payments from any wallet that isn't fully KYC'd, essentially like what they call like a hosted wallet, would also be illegal. Or you have to go through this extremely arduous KYC process to totally identify all of the funding. So the way I read that wording is if, say, you have a cold card and a stash and you want to cash some of that out at some point to put a down payment on a house or whatever it might be, you would have to do an abundance of proof to verify that wasn't terrorism money and that you could verify the source of all of that. Or you use something like Coinbase and you just buy from Coinbase and you spend from Coinbase and problem is solved. The problem with that, obviously, and I know all of you listening realize this, but that is the exact opposite behavior we want to incentivize. And you might hate Gary, but what all this regulation by enforcement has done is it has scared the pants out of providers from having large stashes of customer funds. We see Zeus working hard to do full self-custody. We see Albi pivoting to build self-custody tools and going to invite only for new accounts. We see businesses across the board that are trying to de-risk by reducing the amount of Bitcoin they manage and hold for their customers. And this is a trend we're seeing across multiple providers right now. And this is a trend that is actually good for both the Bitcoiner and the business. If this law were to pass, or if this influenced this part of the self-hosted wallet stuff, it might be Liz's first law, who knows? It would absolutely undo and reverse this trend, which is actually a very positive thing for Bitcoin and Bitcoiners long-term, and for the businesses that are participating in this space. And it would really crush a lot of American businesses that could grow around this. And I'll take it a step further and say, you don't even have to be a Bitcoiner for this to hurt you in general, because prior to the 1980s, most transactions in the U.S., like in most developed Developing countries in the pre-digital era were peer-to-peer. They were cash transactions. They were checks. Checks for being 200-year-old technology and, oh my God, why would you write a check today? They were negotiable instruments that could be bought and sold because they were sort of guaranteed by the payee's bank. There was a lot more flexibility and peer-to-peer options in financial transactions before finance in the developed world was centralized into credit cards and cumbersome slow bank transactions and fintech apps. Is it a coincidence that the centralization of money and financial payment systems and credit has also coincided with massive centralization of wealth and power and surveillance in these economies, in these societies? I don't think so. So in general, there's not an argument that holds any water. There's no data to support the argument that increased financial surveillance by companies and governments helps ordinary citizens. Whenever there's a terrorist attack, like why is the issue with Hamas that they received money? The issue is that they massacred people. That's a fundamental issue. And if you're saying that modern states with terrifying long-range automated weapon systems, trained soldiers, all sorts of incredible power to blow up the physical world cannot protect citizens without those citizens giving up all of their privacy. I just don't think that that is a reasonable argument. I think it's an emotional, fear-based argument that supports increasing centralization of power away from individuals and into institutions that get more illiberal by the day, whatever their stated political ideology. What's a shame, too, is these are not going to be technical changes to Bitcoin. So ultimately, this hurts the states. It doesn't really hurt Bitcoin. Some people will just leave. You know, honestly, when I'm at retirement age, if they've screwed all of this up, I'm probably out of here. 
I'm going to leave on a boat, have a tragic boating accident on the way to the next country. But joking aside, I think you're right. I don't think this bill, as it stands, the Digital Asset Anti-Money Laundering Act actually passes. But I think the influence of this bill will be felt. The entire strategic purpose here is to, I like I said, temporarily suppress price. And the second tier of that strategy is to set the tone before the 2024 year starts when Congress is expected to begin debating, quote unquote, crypto regulation. That has already been stated as part of their, these are things we plan to address in the first half of 2024. They were hoping to get to it in the last half of 2023, but then they had their whole Speaker of the House drama, and so they punted it. Everybody knows that. Liz knows it. Everybody knows it. So the idea is you start the conversation here. That's the idea. This is the marker. Now you have to debate from this starting point. And every kind of concession you get is going to have to be hard fought, hard won. That was the idea. Uh, so I think that's sort of the, in, at least in my opinion, I don't have any proof, obviously, but watching her over the last few years, I think that's exactly exactly the strat here, Dad, is to just set the tone right before the actual debate starts. I think that was also the idea with the Wall Street Journal piece and the whole thing about swimming pools. I know it makes me sound like a conspiracy theorist, but having watched how this works now, I mean, I've watched these hearings. I've watched these politicians since 2014 pretty closely. This is kind of the play. It is more theater than it is anything else. Now, Chris, what do you think will be the biggest geopolitical event in 2024? Oh, obviously the ETF. No, I'm totally kidding. Hmm. Oh, boy. Could be uh, definitely could be something between the US and China. That relationship may be positively, maybe negatively. It's not a question mark. It's an event that will happen. Oh, well, we have the happening. Okay. Is that really a geopolitical event, though? It is, in my opinion. Oh, we have the election, I suppose. Is there that you a, go. It's the U.S. election. Is that a geopolitical event? Absolutely. Or is it a, okay. Yeah. Right. If you're just here for Bitcoin, uh, everything's bullish for Bitcoin at this point. So you can ignore the rest of the episode. No, I don't know. I, I don't know about that. Oh, I got, I got a counter take on that, my friend. Okay. Well, Arthur Hayes had an article a few days ago about the U.S. and China. And in typical Arthur fashion, it's this long meandering thing. He talks about how CZ of Binance is an everyman. And that was his crime. His crime was that he was just some (laughs) regular guy who built the most successful financial institution in recent history and had to be taken down a peg. But the real story in the US-China relationship short term is that they need each other because China is in a persistent economic crisis. Real estate is 25% of their economy and their attempts to deflate that bubble gently have failed spectacularly. When a smaller bubble popped in Japan in 1989, it put Japan in a deflationary depression that it still hasn't recovered from. China is a much larger bubble. It has much more immediate social problems than Japan. So in many ways, it might be harder for China to recover, even though it does have a lot more going for it in terms of being a major engine of economic growth worldwide. And what really kills the Chinese financial system and their central bank's ability to stimulate the domestic economy with cheap credit is a strong dollar. Because a strong dollar sucks money out of the Chinese economy, and it turns their financial stimulus into inflation, which is increasingly politically destabilizing. At the same time, 
A strong dollar is problematic for U.S. domestic industry and employment because it incentivizes the outshoring of labor overseas. It generally increases the returns to capital-based businesses, businesses that can use that strong dollar to make overseas investments, but it doesn't really help American voters. And there's irrefutable data suggesting that when the U.S. is in a recession prior to an election, an incumbent president, or I would say an incumbent administration, only has a one in seven chance of maintaining power for the second term. And so the current White House needs a economic boom, or at least not more contraction, to have any kind of chance of staying in power. And that means coordination with China. That means China using its geopolitical influence to try to maybe reduce geopolitical tension with Russia and Ukraine, maybe put pressure on Iran to reduce tension and stop escalation of the Israeli-Hamas conflict. And it also means that China needs to play nice with U.S. corporates and supply chains so that U.S. consumers don't get more consumer good price increases, which make them incredibly desperate and angry for any kind of change, including a break the system candidate like Trump. So there's every incentive short term for the U.S. to try to enact a weaker dollar policy, which is already in play. We talked about record debt issuances a few episodes ago about a very disappointing treasury auction that I termed a failure. I think there's some egg on my face because while that's a sign of stress in the dollar system, treasury yields have since recovered, suggesting that we're getting the bond bull market steepener, which is the long end of the bond curve increasing due to expectations around Fed rate cuts and future inflation potentially. So this suggests a U.S.-China truce unofficially short-term around economic matters. The U.S., or the Treasury at least, tries to ease financial conditions. This makes it easier for China to enact monetary policy. And if everyone crosses their fingers and prays to Satoshi, then hopefully there's some sort of economic resurgence in China, which is good for China, good for the U.S., good for the entire world. And that backdrop of positive economic news would be very helpful for any sort of incumbent U.S. administration. What does this mean for Bitcoiners and investors? It probably means that U.S. government bonds will become less attractive versus Bitcoin because Bitcoin, at least before all of the mainland China exchanges were shuttered, it was a Chinese phenomenon. BTCC was a huge exchange and did massive volume before it was shut down. And so the Chinese get Bitcoin. There's a lot of capital flows out of China into Bitcoin, into Tether, whenever there is loose monetary conditions in the mainland or economic and political uncertainty. And it just is a very bullish backdrop for a happening. I agree. It is the happening. You have the ETF approval, which seems like a foregone conclusion. And then ultimately, you likely have the Fed beginning to lower rates. Now, Jay Powell has actually indicated as much. They're calling it the Powell pivot. They decided to also pause rate hikes again, which is also looking at like it's they're done. So that obviously is a very bullish signal to the market. And then, which we're going to get to, you have this change in the accounting rules. So you can actually account for the gains of this asset. 
and that's going to be hitting in 2024. I think all of those things are just exceptionally, exceptionally bullish. Like, uh, like in 13 years of following Bitcoin, I don't know if I've ever seen a arrangement this bullish in my life. However, I also have to acknowledge that number only go up if there's the money. And I just, I'm still convinced that we may be heading into a massive recession and there's just going to be no liquidity in the market. I, I don't know. I could be wrong. Perhaps this is a time when Bitcoin breaks away. This may be the inflection point. This may be it where Bitcoin breaks away and continues to pump when everything else is absolutely devastated and people are homeless and losing their jobs possible. People need safe assets in times of financial uncertainty. And if the Bitcoin ecosystem, if the range of products that people can park value in include Bitcoin, then it means inflows. Or, you know, you could have a recession that goes across the West, like we talked about a few weeks ago. Germany is already feeling it. In fact, this morning, Germany just announced emergency measures and has suspended their debt ceiling and uh, has suspended all debt management because of extremely emergent circumstances due to the war in Ukraine, they say. Germany is definitely in a tough spot. I could see that spreading. If you had a West-wide recession, I just can't see Bitcoin pumping in that macro environment. I think the difference is that previous Bitcoin cycles were entirely retail investor driven. And now this is a happening cycle where the infrastructure for institutional participants has been built out and there might be enough financial clarity, especially with the news around the financial accounting standards board changing the way that companies can treat Bitcoin on their balance sheets. Yeah. Look, if, if there's a bad economy, what do companies do? They just try to preserve capital. They cut expenses, they cut workforce. They don't focus on growing their market share because the entire economy is shrinking. Right. I mean, there is a possibility the market wakes up and says, holy crap, let's get into this Bitcoin thing and ride this out. It's possible, maybe. That's a pretty big leap from this thing is used for terrorist money and boils the ocean, but it's possible. But if you read that as a hysterical last gap trying to derail this process of institutionalization, then it turns into a bullish signal. If you're going to run the probabilities, the chances are a bull run more than they are a bear market for Bitcoin. But I just have to point out that it's not a guarantee. It's also not a guarantee that these ETFs will be a popular product. I mean, it's likely, but it's not a guarantee. Also, historically, we have sometimes seen a bit of a price drop after the halvening as miners sort out their biz. So I mean, we just don't really know is all I'm saying. I'd love for it to pump, obviously, but I think I think we still have that huge red flag of a recession, and it feels like it's been looming over us for two years now. But I feel I feel it more than ever. Speaking of red flags, how do you feel about euro-denominated stablecoins? Talking about unpopular products, I mean, go for it. We've seen examples of these, and they're not very popular in comparison to other stablecoins. So it sounds like a CBDC to me. It's called EUR Coinvertible. It is only available to qualified investors under French law, which is similar to accredited investors in the US. So these are either high net worth individuals or financial businesses like hedge funds. You can trade it against euros or tether, but you can't move it off of the Bitstamp exchange unless you are fully KYC'd. But once it's off the exchange, it's on Ethereum. So you can trade it around and put it into DeFi protocols and things. Oh, how exciting. That's so great. So why do this when 
the EU has expressed a lot of skepticism and fears around decentralized financial tools. And I think that fear comes from the fact that the euro was always a completely idealistic monetary experiment that was embarked on for its political goals of unifying Europe and creating a single market. And it's really failed miserably in many respects because one structural problem with the euro is that they did not create a unified government debt market. And so the euro turned into this odd system where countries couldn't have monetary policy, they could only have fiscal policy. And the structure of their central bank, the ECB, it's probably structurally most similar to the worst central bank or one of the worst central banks in history. Quiz time. Do you know what central bank I am referring to? Oh, geez. The worst in history? No. I. Hmm. It's the Weimar Reichsbank. Okay. All right. <laughs> the Weimar Germany inflation. The thing about the Weimar Reichsbank was that it had zero political accountability. It was a incredibly independent, unchecked institution. And so it was able to embark on a massive money printing campaign to essentially pay government deficits without any sort of mechanism for popular backlash. And that backlash eventually came with the election of the Nazi party, which of course didn't work out well for anyone really. Yeah. The EU is pretty clearly a regional currency. It's not an international currency. It's not held in large amounts on balance sheets internationally. And there's been absolutely no interest in EU stablecoins because the dollar is the world's currency. It has a lot of network effects. Why do you need another currency pair in a digital international market? Just complicates things. It's a regional currency. It doesn't have a place or an efficiency in a global money marketplace. And so you could see a project like this and the green light from the ECB and European financial regulators that it necessarily entails as just kind of a desperate move to get in on this, to stay relevant, to try to prevent dollarization through offering something sort of similar to digital dollars, but euro denominated. I doubt it'll go anywhere. I doubt it'll be important, but it's kind of an interesting flag maybe a measure of how creative the European Union is getting around their monetary options. And you, you generally do not want creativity in the same sentence as monetary policy. Doesn't smell desperate at all. No, it's, it's fine. It's fine. I probably, it's probably got a great privacy story. It's, I'm sure it's a good play. I have to look into it after the show. No doubt I'm very excited about it. No doubt. Well, speaking of privacy, Dad, I'm also um, very not excited about the FISA Reform and Reauthorization Act of 2023. Now, it's kind of odd for us to be talking about it on this show, but I think freedom tech is pretty important to a lot of us Bitcoiners and sovereign technology. And I think the really scary thing here is that they broaden the term of electronic service communications provider, meaning hardware that provides network utility falls under this, but also repair folk. So technicians that come in to say work on network gear would technically also now fall under this intelligence umbrella where they could be called upon to spy on individuals and not tell you. And this is wild. If this if this sounds like the stuff of China or Soviet Russia, Dad. After 9-11, the U.S. passed the Patriot Act. And the Patriot Act allowed the U.S. government to compel communication providers 
who give you phone, email, text messaging to provide warrantless backdoor direct access to their system so they could perform mass data collection. And this is, again, completely unconstitutional, and it has a very thinly argued justification that we promise not to broadly use this data against Americans, we'll just broadly use it against non-Americans. But it's very difficult to identify who is where in online communication sometimes. And as a result, the U.S. intelligence community argued that they needed all the data. So it's all being collected by the U.S. government, and you just have to trust that they have principled processes in place not to abuse that data and weaponize it against Americans who are not committing crimes. Sounds bad, right? Well, by broadening this definition of a communication service provider, it means that every business in America, if they have a network, Wi-Fi, email, they're a customer support line. They're now part of this data collection program, whether they want to be or not. It also means that when your CenturyLink or Verizon repair guy comes to troubleshoot your internet, he could also have a checklist on his company-approved SOP to change configurations to make direct collection of your network data by the U.S. government more easy or open backdoors. If you just pause for a moment, how does that checklist end up on that technician's sheet? That goes all the way up through the company. There has to be collaboration with the federal government to eventually define the standards that go on that sheet. You think about what that means for a second. The kind of level of now integration that your everyday companies now have with the federal government to get that that checklist on that guy's sheet. The ramifications of that are are just amazing. I mean, it's just unbelievably how far this goes. I think this changes the nature of the relationship with all businesses in the federal government. And I think it fundamentally changes the nature between the customer and the company now. I mean, if every coffee shop in America has to do compliance with mass surveillance mandates, how many independent coffee shops are we going to have? How many independent businesses, how many small businesses will be not viable? Because in addition to all of your permitting and those sort of commonplace regulations that just ensure that your business isn't sort of actively hurting people, you also have to go through these esoteric, complicated, potentially expensive digital surveillance compliance regimes. It's insane. If you want a economy dominated by massive corporations that are just standardizing everything, offering a single consumer experience for everything because they have efficient systems that can deal with this compliance. This is how you get there. Every cloud provider will, right? Because this expands their ability to say, get your emails or your text messages from a service provider. Or to direct access to your VMs in the cloud. I mean, it's a security nightmare. It's a privacy nightmare. I mean, even large companies that already do compliance in other areas like logistics, as a result of this bill passing, I imagine in two to three years, the cybersecurity department is going to have another mandate, which is maintaining your mass surveillance collection system and making sure those APIs are talking with the FBI servers. I mean, that's absolutely nuts. In addition to being a complete abomination in terms of having any sort of open and free society where you can speak your mind and discuss controversial things like political topics without fear of the incumbent government attacking you as a result, this is just raising costs and exposing individuals' data to more opportunities for breach, loss, misuse. Everything about this is wrong. You know, I just don't know where to begin because it's passed. And when I have conversations with other dads, I was at a birthday party and there was a dad who'd bought some Bitcoin, but was explaining to me how we 
really need to clamp down on all of this illegal usage? It's so dangerous. Where do you even start? It feels like it's a losing battle. Yeah, and these things can have ramifications that we can't even begin to understand. The things that the Patriot Act changed, we just can barely only begin to wrap our heads around the potential ramifications. Example one, the Patriot Act made it so that way federal government employees couldn't be tried for manufacturing chemical weapons, even though it was against international law. We made it possible for federal agents to essentially be indemnified from international court for working with biological weapons. And that led to investments in companies like EcoHealth Alliance. I mean, these things can have unbelievable kind of ramifications that we haven't even considered. It's absolutely detrimental. And it's so wild to see it just not even register because we're so slammed right now. We can't even keep track of this stuff anymore. Like when uh, Liz's bell, bill came out again on Monday with uh, a whole bunch of new co-sponsors. I, at first, I, I wasn't even sure if it was a brand new bill because there's so many crappy bills coming out right now. Or if this was just like she supercharged her old bill. Like you can hardly keep it straight anymore. So people can't even they can't even be bothered. And it's it's pretty wild because <laughs> I mean, it's not even an exaggeration to say that now every cloud provider out there can be compelled to hand over all types of communications and records without notifying you. And that process, which used to require at least a national security letter or a warrant, has just been done away with now. And this applies to hotels. It applies to libraries, coffee shops, like Dad was saying. I mean, this is everywhere. It really makes me want to double down on anything that is freedom technology, like Linux and open source technology and Bitcoin and encryption and applications like SimpleX and platforms like Noster. And it makes me just want to just completely opt out of this entire system because it's so far gone. Right. And I think that it's fragile, too. And there's negatives to that because when you build huge invasive institutions and structures that peer into people's lives, but also people rely on when they fail, they affect a lot of people. At the same time, I guess I subscribe to a sort of creative destruction view of human progress, society, and economics, which suggests that the world is made of living things. Institutions are like people in that they grow old, atrophy, and eventually die. And so this is the process, right? This is the process. It just gets worse and worse until it breaks and changes. Yeah, I think the theory is right. I mean, the momentum is there. This is all wrapped up into an $890 billion spending bill, right? This is like one of many things in an $890 billion package amongst new aircraft carriers and giving raises to soldiers, right? It's a, it was one of these must-pass bills. Yeah, you can't vote it down because then the government stops working and you voted against giving raises to soldiers. And you voted against uh, the defense bill in a time of absolute uncertainty all around the world. Political suicide. So these omnibus bills are a mark of absolute dysfunction in American politics. And unfortunately, that affects everybody. But there is dysfunction at a smaller scale, and it's also surveillance related. Can you explain to the listeners why we are dropping our cynical campaign to get a cold card sponsorship by promoting Ledger Wallet? Yeah, dang it. Ah, oh, you know, we realized here on the on the dad pod that we had to play hardball and uh, get the big money, but wrecked now. So you guys are probably pretty familiar with Ledger if you listen to this show and might be familiar with Ledger Live, which is their suite to manage a Ledger device and you can play around with your crap coins if you want. 
they're adding more and more features all the time. You don't have to use it, but it's kind of like the mechanism they start you with. It's sort of the default path. And I think also you do have to use it for firmware updates. And it turns out that this software in real time is pulling JavaScript that's hosted on a CDN. And it's doing stuff in the background that you're not really aware of and pulling that stuff in and then executing it and rendering it for you. Real handy. Problem is nothing was properly signed. And it appears from what I understand that Ledger's CDN somehow was compromised and a malicious library, a drainer as they call it, was put up on that CDN. And then when the Ledger Live software launched and it connected to that CDN and failed to do any authorization and checking, pulled down the malicious library and begun draining folks' wallet. So there were actually two issues here. One is that the integration of altcoins, but really Node.js dependencies, makes any project have a massive attack surface. That's one thing for a chat app, right? It's another thing for your family's life savings. And that's why robust Bitcoin applications tend to look like crap, because they're not pulling down these fancy Node.js-like surfaces to make your UI super slick and beautiful. Whereas altcoin projects tend to look great because it's all marketing. It's all user experience. The fundamentals are terrible there. So that's a huge security problem. The other issue with Ledger is that their wallet software leaks all your data to a third-party data collector. And, you know, maybe this sort of stuff is useful for app development because you can see how people are using the app and you can kind of think about features and how to improve the user experience. But it includes account balances and unique identifiers. So combine this with other Ledger data leaks and all of your activity is now out there and attackers, governments, whoever can compile it, figure out exactly what you've been doing in your Ledger wallet, what your balances are, and either come and seize it or steal it from you. Ledger's a no-go at this point. Even if you're using a Ledger hardware device with a rock-solid Bitcoin wallet like Sparrow, these APIs exist on the device. It has the potential to do all these things. Don't use it. Don't do it. Just throw it away. They just forfeit themselves as a contender because the design is fundamentally flawed, right? They they fixed, they, they patched it, and they got the right library back out there, but that doesn't prevent the funds from getting drained, and the wallet still operates this way. The wallet software still operates this way. I just don't get it. I think, too, you have to consider that for your long, long-term stash, if you're actually legitimately hodling this thing for a decade, you don't want your wallet software to have to communicate to a server at all. What are the chances those servers will be around in 10 years when you go to cash out? Are you going to remember your login? Are you even going to be using the same password manager? Are you using a password manager? It's crazy. The idea that you would want your long-term savings to have to rely on communications with anything but the actual network that you're transacting on is bonkers to me. And I just strongly advise against it. No account required, no server required, should not be communicating with the CDN. And those are all red flags right there. And I think if you want to take it one step further, the wallet should be made by somebody separate than the hardware provider, because then at least you have two different attack surfaces. It's not as easy. But what is easy is heading over to jupiterbroadcasting.com and checking out my podcast network. And we just released a new episode of the self-hosted podcast. And in there, my buddy Alex got himself one of the new framework laptops. So it's kind of interesting because he's he's been a Mac guy for a long time. So to get his take on the new framework was fascinating. But we finally gave some love to a project that everybody out there should know about. It's so good, it's worth spending some sats on. And that's WLED. 
I love this so much. It was created by a kid. It's now a small family project that created this board to run WLED. And WLED is an open source LED project that's super fancy. lets you have all kinds of patterns and really nice integrates with management systems, or you can just use an app. And this small family business created this little board on Amazon that you can get up and running in like 45 seconds. And you have a totally open source platform to have total control over your LEDs and you can build them into projects or you can just put them under your countertops. Such a cool thing to see. Anyways, anyways, I'll stop going on about it. But that is in episode 112, a bunch of good episodes and shows and whatnots over there at jupiterbroadcasting.com. Both of our Bitcoin education topics kind of spark larger topics. So let's start with the Bitcoin Optech. I think probably the most exciting thing in the Bitcoin Optech this week is the announcement that we have another Stratum version 2 mining pool launching. Demand. Like most new mining pools, there are low fees until some point in the future. And the cool thing about Stratum V2 is that it gives miners the opportunity to build their own block templates. So it means that censoring transactions at the pool level becomes less easy. It's a solo mining launch. So I think that miners, I don't quite understand how this works with the solo mining, but I don't think it's as good as working in a pool. I think the payouts are much less consistent. But our latest pool launch, Ocean Pool, was marred by controversy because Ocean Pool, which is a rebranding of Luke Dasher's Allegius Pool, had a nice no KYC, no custody for miners, a new fee calculation method that seemed like it might do well by miners. But then it turned out that Ocean Pool was running Bitcoin Knots under the surface. Bitcoin Knots is Luke Dasher's very opinionated implementation of Bitcoin consensus rules. And it does a whole bunch of things like excluding some ordinal transactions. We're not big fans of ordinals, but they are consensus compliant and therefore filtering them out opens up larger issues around censorship of the Bitcoin blockchain and transactions on chain. But then on top of it, because Bitcoin Knots has a limit on the size of the op return field, which is different than Bitcoin Core, some samurai wallet transactions were not being passed through. And Luke and Ocean Pool declined to address that issue with Samurai. And now the recommendation from Samurai, which is of course the, I would say, preeminent privacy centralized coin join solution, centralized in the sense that Samurai coordinates the coin join rounds a little, is strictly against Ocean Pool. So it's nice that there's another pool launch. And at least in the few days since their announcement, they have not done anything particularly controversial. Yeah, I love to see this. Let's have more V2 out there. That's fantastic. Also, I don't have a lot to say on this other than it's noteworthy. Bitcoin Core had an update and PayJoin CLI is a Rust project and is now included with Bitcoin Core, it seems. I just love that, A, that seems to be bundled now with Bitcoin Core, and B, it's a Rust project, which seems like the right kind of application of technology for the job there. And PayJoin is a really cool protocol where you and I can pay coins into a transaction and take them out. It's like a mini coin join. It improves on-chain privacy by breaking the common input ownership heuristic that is a large basis for chain analysis and tracking users online. There is also news that Minibits, a mobile eCash wallet, has a new seed backup capability. And this is kind of interesting. We sort of expect all crypto wallets to have a seed backup. But the thing about eCash is that it is not decentralized. 
eCache lives on eCache servers. You have to trust the operator of the server or mint as they call them to not steal your funds. But eCache enables the server operator to let you do financial transactions, but also give you really good privacy. And it's a cool use of cryptography to basically run a centralized database of transactions, but you don't know who is transacting with who or for how much. You might know how much sometimes, but I think not always. So being able to restore a wallet that you've lost with a eCash Mint is definitely a necessary piece of technology. And eCash Mints are a centralized scaling layer that could be built on top of Bitcoin or Lightning. That said, I think that centralized scaling is legally problematic because clearly the institutionalization of Bitcoin is coming at the cost of privacy and openness. So that's going to be a battle we'll see in the future, I think. Well, we'd like to know your thoughts. You can always get in touch with us. Email us if you like, bitcoindadpod at protonmail.com. Or you can uh, post us on WeaponX at bitcoindadpod. Sometimes he's on there. Or you can find us in the Matrix. We'll have links in the show notes. You can join our Matrix channel. We have one for general questions and discussion. You just got to get a chat app like Element and then join us over there. Or, of course, you could do the boosty thing and send us a boost and support each production with a new podcast app and get your message read on the show. And we do have some boost this week, Dad. And our baller this week is listener Jeff. He comes in with 42,222 ducks. Ducks. (laughs) Sats. He says, if uh, we were using Bitcoin as a hedge against the financial institutions or ultimately controlled by our governments, how are we safe from the government who also controls the ISPs telling them to block all Bitcoin uh, nodes or blockchain traffic? Maybe they decide to start blocking individual nodes or IPs that are known to have wallets. It's all just TCPIP, right? Seems logical. Like any other bit of traffic, the ISPs could simply isolate our traffic and cut us off from our funds. Having a wallet or node does us no good if we can't connect to the internet and transfer funds or convert the value. What am I missing here? Even with encryption, the top-level routers of the world need to know where to send this traffic. The bits can't completely be obscured, right? Headers, DNS, metadata, whatever seems to be out there, or whatever the power's willing, could use that to identify and then cut us off at any time. I guess this is something I've been wondering because it was brought up during a conversation with my old fogey uncle on Thanksgiving. He's old-school IT, and I don't know enough to provide an answer. Thanks. I think the short answer is that the most advanced and invasive digital surveillance regime in the world is the People's Republic of China. They have this system called the Grape Firewall, which basically isolates the Chinese internet and makes it such that Chinese citizens can't view news or narratives or even much media from outside of China. And it's used for mainly social control. This system cannot block Bitcoin traffic and does not prevent Chinese citizens from using Bitcoin. They're prevented at the financial institution level, not at the network level. So I think that the international nature of the internet, the fact that you need kind of multi-country connectivity, it's not like China cut itself off from the internet fully. They're just trying to create a gate that they can control traffic in and out. And they are finding this difficult, and they've been working on this problem for decades now. So to me, that suggests that because there is an added layer of complexity to stopping, limiting, controlling Bitcoin traffic versus traditional financial rails, which are, as we're seeing, much more simple and straightforward to control, even if there are attacks in the future, Bitcoin definitely gives you more options and more resilience in the face of those attacks. And can you protect yourself from your government? Absolutely. 
absolutely not. Your government's coming after you. I'm sorry to hear that. But this gives you more options. If that argument were true, that the uh, government could identify all the traffic and shut it down. Well, one thing, we'd actually have a accurate picture of how many nodes are out there. We don't know. We have rough guesstimates that it's it's well over 15,000, could be over 30,000, but we don't really know because so many of them, like my own, are obscured behind Tor. And we just can't really, even as the people running the network, tell you how many nodes there are completely. So I don't know how the federal government would do it. And then additionally, if they could stop it, they would have stopped piracy a long time ago. Usenet, yes, I mentioned it, wouldn't still be a thing. It's remarkable. Some things just seem to be outside their grasp. And I was thinking about this earlier when we were talking about how Wi-Fi routers are now basically owned by the federal government. Well, I can't do that if I build a Nix box and I just build my own router because the fundamentals are still there. It means that the people who are technologically savvy continue to have a massive advantage over folks who are not as savvy or maybe are old school and haven't adapted to new ways. And that gap as the exits close is going to get even more significant. And as we see things like these privacy laws where they're just ratcheting up Section 702, the people that know how to build their own devices are going to be in a better position than the people that don't. People that know how to properly secure and hide their nodes will be in a better position than the folks that don't. They could make Bitcoin a federal crime and I wouldn't shut my node down and I wouldn't get rid of my stack. I would just go low-key hide and then eventually try to leave. But we would probably stop producing a podcast. Yes. Yeah, I think what I would do is I'd take that free time and I'd get a boat and I'd uh, go on some nice boating trips. It's so odd. My wife asked me if we would ever buy a boat today, just out of the blue. Yeah, well, I suggest it. And I think too, when you go boating, that's an opportunity for somebody to break into your home and steal your stash. So bring your stash with you. I think that's the safe play. When waterproof cold card, or maybe that defeats the purpose. Hopefully never. JCXFNT boosted in 25,283 sats. Talking about mining pools, I detected that you all believe Brains Pool is better than some of the others. Why is that? I started running a couple of S9 heaters, and I felt like I was getting slightly more payout with via BTC than Brains. By the way, I'm just breaking even, taking the heating into account. Well, I don't recall saying or having an opinion about Brains Pool. Do you recall that conversation, Chris? No, I don't have any pool opinions other than I want to see just more diversity and more Stratum V2. But I haven't mined in so dang long that uh, I don't really feel like I could have an opinion. I think that Brains Pool has a maybe like an operating system or firmware that you can load on certain miners. Oh, yeah, right. That is considered technically more efficient or something. They do some optimization. So I think that that might be an advantage to using them. But I don't really know too much about that. I'm not a miner. Honestly, I really wish I could. I wish I was heating the studio or my RV with a Bitcoin miner. I really would love to do that. And I would love to just revisit that because mining is what brought me into Bitcoin initially. And I'd love to get back to my roots, but just the cost and the energy requirement, I don't, I just don't really have a facility. I don't have a way to facilitate that, um, but I'd love to just get that experience again. Our Shackleford comes in with 2000 sats. Uh, he's got no message though, but uh, still likes to support the show. Thank you, Rusty. Bad Co. also boosted in a row of ducks with no message. I guess we're in bad company. Sounds cool. There is currently a Podverse race condition that has been fixed, but if you haven't updated, it's possible your message has been dropped. So bad company, if that's you and you got bit, uh, first of all, 
apologize about that. We've been notified by the development team that the updates are out. I think it does take about a week, though, for F-Droid. But by the time you're hearing this, just make sure you have Podverse updated and then do a follow-up and we'll make sure we read it. Mere Mortals podcast comes in with a row of ducks. Through the podcast, I've recently got the opportunity to convert from Lightning to on-chain. I've got two questions. How traceable are these stats from Lightning, considering they've come in a very identifiable Albi wallet? And do you know many stories of people having non-KYC Bitcoin who actually needed them? I know theoretically why non-KYC Bitcoin is important, but I'd be more persuaded with real-life examples of where they were vital for economic freedom. Great question. I think that non-KYC Bitcoin is more useful in developing countries and authoritarian regimes where there are explicit bans and controls on a lot of financial transactions, especially international financial transactions. I know personally of some people in Russia who use Bitcoin to take their funds out of the country when they emigrated after the beginning of the Ukraine war. So I think that's one example where that would be very useful. I think that for people in developing countries where things work okay for the moment, non-KYC Bitcoin is insurance against future overreaching laws that attempt to either confiscate or punitively tax Bitcoin transactions. And so if you're non-KYC, you can wait out the law and maybe it's repealed or maybe you can go to a place where you are beyond its reach. But if your funds are completely KYC'd, I think it invites more problems down the line. I was going to say it's optionality, right? It's 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 a whole world of optionality. Uh, maybe it's you don't want to be tracked by the bank and the government and you don't want your tax agency of um, your general location to just have an automatic report of what you've bought. And maybe you have optionality because you want to be able to use it for political reasons and you don't want to get tracked back to you. So I think optionality is it. And I don't think it's um, horrible if you've decided that these things aren't a concern for you. Although with the direction of Western economics, governments may get more hostile. So you may want to hedge towards increased government hostility over time. Um, and that would also make me lean a little non-KYC. But I think it's it's a great question. I prefer non-KYC whenever possible for my savings. And so you asked about Albi and swapping. I will drop a link in the show notes to a, a Stacker News AMA with one of the founders of Bolts.exchange, which I may presume you are using. Um, and the question in there is, how does using Bolts.exchange compare to, say, using a coin join? And they give that answer. And I think it's it's pretty good. I mean, it, the, the general takeaway is, is that there is a disconnect there when you do that swap. You're probably better off privacy-wise than a lot of other methods, but you can read the entire answer in the Stacker News Post. At Halleck, boosted in 10,000 sats with the message, boost. Thank you for the boost. Thank you, Halleck. DPG comes in with 2,323 cents using Castomatic. He says, hey, Dad and Chris, I have a friend that I've been orange-pilling for a while. After I explained the happening to him, he's gotten on board question is, how should he go about getting started? When I began, I was a little overzealous and I personally bought a cold card. But for most people, I can't make a great argument for the cold card's threat model. Do you think it's worth jumping into hardware wallets off the bat, or would you recommend Sparrow on a separate encrypted Ubuntu install? This is a great question because I feel like your answer may be different, Dad, in a high-fee environment. Imagine a world where the fee is like $30, even for like medium priority. And somebody decides that all of a sudden, because I would assume if the fee's up, the value's up, the price is up, number go up. So somebody decides their little stash of Bitcoin's now important enough to them that they want to put it on cold storage. Well, they've now got to move that Bitcoin. You can't just migrate 
like in Sparrow, you can't have a soft wallet, plug in a cold card, and click a migrate button, and just move everything onto the cold card. No, no. Because the private key was on a computer that was connected to the internet, so that means that that private key can never be fully trusted. You have to generate a new private key on the hardware device, which means you have to send those Bitcoin to the new private key. So there is, I think, in a high-fee environment, an argument if somebody's really all-in for starting with a hardware device and then just always stacking to that hardware wallet because otherwise you're going to have to at some point eat that sandwich and make that move if if they get to a point that's just one consideration i don't necessarily like making it my default recommendation because i'm basically saying okay now that you've uh, uh, figured out this entire massive new economic concept now go blow 300 bucks or whatever is 200 bucks and get a hardware device it's it's a it's a hard ask but if you're asking for my honest opinion if i were to with our guys here at jb because they're in on the splits for the shows I had them all go get hardware wallets first before they started sweeping to their to their uh, cold storage because otherwise they're just going to have to do it again later. I guess for me, the question is, how do you want to learn? Because if you want to just get started and you do some due diligence and you put your Bitcoin wallet on a separate user account and you have permissions on your computer, this will not work on Windows. I, I don't know if it'll work on Mac, but it, it will work on Linux. Then I think you're pretty okay until the day something changes and you update some software and you run it as root and now your device is pwned and your Bitcoin is gone. So that is a risk. If you have an old laptop that you don't do much with, I think it's much safer because then, you know, you kind of have a dedicated Bitcoin laptop if you just have one around. There are disadvantages there because, again, it's like another big piece of hardware. But if you're trying to keep a stash of Bitcoin that's over $1,000 on a everyday driver laptop in a separate account, there's going to be a moment during the halvening when that's going to be more money than you expected and you're going to start feeling uncomfortable. Or, you know, it can just sneak up. You know, this is, I think, the other problem is that folks like this might not just be thinking about it. Not everybody thinks about their Bitcoin stash every day. And the price can just go up in the background during a bull run. And what was once a $1,000 target is now a $10,000 target. And it's worth a lot more for somebody to try to figure out how to get into your soft wallet sitting on your Mac. It's, it's just It's just time. In time, if the thesis is correct, that's going to become a more valuable target. And you just got to plan for that. Um, I don't, you know, I don't disagree, though, that if you're just dealing with like a thousand dollars or less, you could just eat the bullet one, you know, bite the bullet, or whatever the saying is, and move it at some point in the future and, you know, go to a hard hardware storage at that point. It's I don't think it's worth getting hung up on, but it's definitely worth considering. You can also use a mobile wallet like Samurai. I mean, I've used Samurai in the past. It's all on chain. So you're going to be paying high on chain fees, but you won't have to deal with the sharp edges and gotchas of lightning liquidity. And you don't need a node in the background. You can use the Samurai node. And I think there's an argument for that being pretty okay privacy and security, even though you're talking to someone else's node. And fairly approachable. Yeah. So that's a mobile option. I don't really think there's a great answer because all financial decisions are incredibly individual. I do see where the bit key is going to fill a hole here for a lot of people like this individual. You know, I I can I can see that, especially like if you've got an iPhone, say you've got the iPhone 12 and you're going to go get the iPhone 16 when it comes out. Well, your 12 is probably going to last another 10 years and you could pair it with the bit key thing and do the backup thing. 
and you're good to go for probably a decade. And then when you do need to move, they got a whole system to move. I, I actually think they're onto something. I don't think it's for guys like you and I, but our booster's friend here, maybe, maybe. Thank you, DPG. Appreciate that boost. I wanted to talk about something really quick. It was below the cutoff, but Kepford said that I might have misspoke when I mentioned that Unchained could take your Bitcoin collateral during with one of their loans. I wonder if it's a nuance thing, and I'd really like feedback because I'd like to know the answer to this. My understanding is with the standard Unchained custody, you have two of three. So they can't take your funds in the standard, like they're just doing custody services for you. And I actually think that's kind of nice as a as a business. I could see where you have multiple owners of a business and you just want a neutral third party that holds this crazy expensive asset. I could see Unchained making a lot of sense there. But where I wonder if they have the ability to cash out is when you use their loan product. I suspect in a loan product, Unchain holds a key. You move your Bitcoin into a different wallet, which is like a hot wallet. And then Unchained holds a key. A third party that Unchained works with holds a key. And then you hold a key. So theoretically, Unchained isn't going to just steal your Bitcoin, but if you're missing payments or your collateral is too low, Unchained takes the contract they have with you to their third party and they say, listen, so-and-so is in breach, we need to liquidate. And then the third party validates that and says, okay, I'll sign this transaction, we need to liquidate them. And I'm sure they just have a process for that. I may be wrong, I've never been a customer of Unchained, but I'd love to know how that works because, you know, maybe one day I might be and I would love to have information on that. Please boost in if you know. And thank you everybody who did boost in. We had eight boosters this week, not a huge week, 86,472 sats. Didn't even make it over the 100,000 sat line, but I know it's the holidays. We understand and we just appreciate you listening. If you do feel a little generous this holiday, you can always boost in with a new podcast app at podcastapps.com. And honestly, if you don't want to switch apps, but you have the Strike app or you have the Cash app, it is ridiculously easy to just go scan the QR code on Fountain FM. If you can find Bitcoin Dad Pod on the Fountain FM site, sometimes tricky. You just scan the QR code. It'll do all of it for you. And you can boost in right there. They got a little web form you can fill out and send a message in. It'll be a nice way to send a holiday boost as we get towards the end of the year. Thank you, everybody who did boost in. We appreciate you. This has been the Bitcoin Dad Pod recorded on December 15th, 2023. I've been your Bitcoin Dad, and I'm here remotely, as always, with me, Chris. Thanks for joining us, everybody. See you next time.